there, uh, there's a story in the church's history. It's a well-known story. I trust many of you have uh, come across it yourselves. This, was, this particular missionary was a man committed to what we now call uh, pioneer or frontier missions of proclaiming the good news of Jesus in a part of the world where the name of Jesus had never been named before. And uh, on one occasion, this man was preaching the word, and there was a young woman in the midst of the crowd who was known uh, to be possessed by an evil spirit. She was a slave, and uh, her owners made much money off of her because she would tell people's fortunes. And so she was there in the midst as this man was preaching the gospel, and she kept crying out in the middle and interrupting him. And this missionary, just he had endured enough of it, and he, he commanded this evil spirit in the name of Jesus to come out of her, and the demon obeyed him on the spot. And this young woman was set free. It, it was an amazing miracle. And yet her, her owners, who were making money off of her fortune-telling, they were none too appreciative about this profound miracle. And so they, they seized this missionary along with one of his traveling companions and they dragged him into the, the marketplace, the center of the city, and they accused him before the civil magistrates. And then the magistrates actually tore the clothes off of these people, these missionaries, and they beat them with rods. And they, they threw them in the deepest part of the prison. It's like a dungeon. No trial. They fastened their feet in chains. Two faithful followers of Jesus, publicly shamed by being stripped and beaten with rods, sitting in the deepest part of the prison, their feet in chains, sleepless in the middle of the night. And then, you know what they start to do? Right there in the middle of the night? I, I know some of you have heard this story, so you probably know what they did. They started having a hymn sing. Right there in the middle of the night. And you know what happened when they started singing hymns? The earth shook. There was an earthquake. Watch out what might happen when you sing songs of praise to God in midnight with a friend in the midst of your misery. Crazy things. And the gates of the prison were thrown open, and the jailer who was keeping watch on these prisoners, he thought he was a goner because if he lost all these prisoners, the authorities that he was uh, under obligation to, they were going to kill him. So he was ready to take his own life. And yet these two missionaries, having been so uh, grossly mistreated, they could have, you would think they could have vengefully watched this jailer take his own life and walked away free to the next destination and continued their gospel proclamation. But instead, what they did was they actually rescued this jailer because they, they kept all the prisoners in place. And when the jailer fell before them in desperation, they spoke to him of Jesus. And that night, the jailer repented of his sin and they baptized him, and they welcomed him, this man who had kept them captive. They welcomed him into their eternal family in Christ. Now, as I, as I heard that story, 
Like I try to, if I put myself in their circumstances, if I'm up, if I'm awake at midnight for any reason at all, I am not very happy. These men had, had been beaten, humiliated, imprisoned in chains, and they're, they're singing songs of praise. How'd they, how'd they do that? This missionary wrote around the same time as this event happened, he gave us at least one part of his secret. This letter, you know it as the letter to the Galatians. I trust most of you realize at this point that I, the story, I'm, the missionary I was telling you about was a man named Paul, the apostle, and his traveling companion was named Silas, and that story I just told you can be found in the 16th chapter of the book. We endure that with joy and with love. He said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. Paul's secret, he tells us right there, there may have been other, I'm sure there were other pieces, but one part of his secret, how do you sing songs of praise in the midst of all the mistreatment he endured, he tells us it was because of his union with Christ in me. And that is a good bridge to what we're going to be looking at this morning as we continue to study in John chapter 15. So go ahead and open, if you've not gotten there yet, to John chapter 15. We looked last Sunday at verses 1 through 17 of this chapter, in which Jesus instructed his disciples about what it means to abide in him, to remain in him, to be in him, to have Christ in us. The way a, a branch is attached to a vine in order that it might bear fruit for the Father's glory. And I, I said last week, though it was brief, that, that the context for this fruit bearing is not some pristine environment of serenity and earthly comfort, but it's in the midst of hardship. Jesus was preparing his disciples to enjoy spiritual power to bear fruit even amidst the profound hatred of this world. And that's how this text in John 15 continues. From the prospects of abiding in Jesus and bearing fruit to the Father's glory to the reality of being hated by this world. Let me read, let me pray first and ask that the Lord would bless the reading of his word. And then I'm going to read John 15 beginning in verse 18 into chapter 16 through verse 4. Let me pray, though, first. Father, we need your help. We've been reminded, we were reminded earlier from John 15, can do nothing. Apart from Jesus' work among us here now in this auditorium, by your spirit, we can have no profitable fruit born in our lives. Nothing good will come of this gathering without the help of Jesus. And so we ask for his help. Give us understanding, help us to take heed to your word, not just to understand it intellectually, but to bring it to bear on our hearts and lives by your spirit's name, amen. John 15, beginning in verse 18, has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. 
But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the helper comes, who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Two observations that I want to draw your attention to from this passage of Scripture. Two ways that Jesus is preparing his disciples to live in this world in his physical absence. was just as relevant. It is just as relevant for us today as it was in the, his soon departure from this world. Two ways that he prepares us. Number one, count on being hated by the world count on being hated by the world. Number two, count on Jesus giving you all the help that you need to withstand the world's hatred and faithfully bear witness to him. If you're taking notes, I'll say that one. It was a little longer, so I'll, I'll say it to you again. Count on Jesus giving you all the help that you need to withstand the world's hatred and faithfully bear witness to him. So first, disciples of Jesus, that is all of you who are here committed to following Jesus, count on being hated by this world. It's, it's not hard to see in this text, right? Verse 18, look at it again. Good to have your Bibles open. Never want to rely on just what I'm saying, but you want to see it in the Bible for yourselves. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Uh, in verse 20, Jesus says, if the master was among them, right? Jesus himself was among them and they treated him with scorn and derision. Then surely you who have made yourself and pledged yourself as servants of that master, you also can expect that same treatment. Jesus makes this very clear to his disciples so that they will not be, so that you will not be caught off guard or confused or surprised by it. It is, in fact, one of the ways that he protects us. Do you see it says there in verse 1 of chapter 16, I'm saying these things to you to keep you, to protect you from falling away. Jesus did not come to make your life easier. 
and he is not bashful about telling you that right up front. He did come to make your life better in a whole lot of ways. Some ways now, many, many ways, infinitely better ways in eternity. But he did not come to give you an easy life, and he wants you to know that. If you're, if you're among us this morning as a relatively new follower of Jesus, a dear sister Tamara, I'm thinking of you. Not only you, but I don't mean to call She is terrified right now. I just called her out. Just because we had the joy of, of, of witnessing your baptism just a couple of weeks ago. You may be weighing whether you do desire to be baptized and commit yourself to following Jesus. Jesus wants you to know this. He wants you to make sure you're factoring this into your considerations of whether you will commit to following him. He likens it to carrying a cross, which was an instrument of execution. Jesus, you will be hated. These words clearly are spoken immediately to those 11 apostles who were gathered there on that final night before Jesus' death. But we know this expectation of the world's hatred is universal. Uh, we know it because the Apostle John, who was there that night when he wrote what we call 1 John, he said in 1 John 3.13, do not be surprised, my brothers. Now he's writing to Christians later in the first century and by application to all who would follow after them. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. That this is a universal expectation is made very clear in 2 Timothy 3. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The world hated Jesus. And so if you've come to love Jesus and make it your life's ambition to bear witness to Jesus and help others come to know and love Jesus, you can count on some of that hatred towards him getting directed towards you. Verse 21 says, this hatred is happening on account of my name. When you call people to repent of their sin, when you tell them that they are sinners and they deserve God's wrath, you can identify yourself in there with it. It's not like it's just at them, but when you call them to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus and say he is the only way to be rescued from divine judgment, praise God, they will be converted, right? Mentioned earlier in the, in the prayer, uh, uh, the pastoral prayer of the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were pierced and convicted and they repented and believed. But some will hate you. They will oppose you for suggesting that they have anything to repent of. They will not like that. And they will not like that because they did not like him. That was Jesus' experience when he lived on the earth. He came to his own, we're told in John 1.11. He came to his own offering light and life, and his own people did not receive him. Jesus has come as the light of the world, and he is exposing by his light that pre-existing hatred of him. And his, I, I think that is what Jesus is referring to there in verses 22 to 24 of our text, which can be a little bit confusing. It almost makes it sound there. We know that from scripture, that all people are, are sinners. It didn't take Jesus coming into the world to make people sinners, what he means is that the guilt of people that was there, their preference for the darkness, their love of the darkness, is being exposed and intensified in a very vivid way by Jesus appearing in the Father's name and doing the works of the Father and their subsequent rejection of him. 
That's what Jesus says earlier in John chapter 3. He says, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. You see, they were evil before he came into the world. But the light came and they showed, it showed their love for darkness because their works were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. What was true in the first century is also true. People continue to hate Jesus. And so they will continue to hate you if you faithfully tell them about Jesus. Not just what Jesus has done for you. People typically won't hate you if you just tell them about what Jesus has done for you. But if you read through the book of Acts, what you see is that these disciples who were there on that final night, they didn't just go saying, Jesus has done some great things for me. They said, Jesus is the exalted Lord of the universe. You have offended him. You must repent and you must be reconciled to him. And he's a loving, faithful God. He will welcome you if you repent. And that's what God people hated. Sometimes those people who hate us are even those with some of you, I know many of you, to varying degrees, but many of you know something of that experience. Jesus has prepared us for it. He says in Matthew chapter 10, do not think, this is to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. So we don't talk about that verse very much at Christmas time when we celebrate his coming into the world, but that's what he says. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, clarification, he does come to bring peace and offer peace to all who will have it. That's the good news. That's what we celebrate in the gospel, that God has made a way through Jesus that sinners can be at peace with God through repenting of their sin and receiving his forgiveness in Christ. But for all those who have that peace, who receive that peace by God's grace, and those who remain stubborn and resistant and unwilling to receive it, it will bring separation. It will bring a sword. He says, I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. He even, it may be even more sober just a few verses actually before he said that, he said, brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Now, maybe you've not experienced it with that. I trust that you have not experienced it with that kind of intensity. I've not been made aware of any death threats that any of you are walking in from family members because of your following Jesus. It is that way in many parts of the world, even today. I don't think that has been your experience, but you have experienced this estrangement, this sword, many of you, and that's hard. Remember, brothers and sisters, those of you who are walking in that experience, it is not you ultimately. It is the response to Jesus. Pray, don't give in, don't, don't lose heart, don't give in to despair. Keep praying for that change that you long to see in your family members. Pray that hearts would be softened. He's still in the business of doing that. But understand that Jesus said there would be conflict. Keeping the peace in a relationship, even with a loved one. Jesus said that's not always going to be possible. 
but you want to follow in the way of Jesus, even if it brings pain and estrangement and alienation within your household, because he is surely worth that. You are worthy of all the glory. He is worthy of that kind of hatred, whether it's from family members or anywhere else in society. He is worthy of it. Approach for the name of Jesus. We're told in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, after they had been arrested, persecuted, uh, beaten, it says they left the presence of to suffer dishonor for the name, rejoicing that they've been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name because that name was so precious to them. I think we're reminded of how precious he is in this passage that we're looking at when we're told there in verse 19. Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. He has chosen you, believer, out of this world. And he has shown himself worthy of all your devotion, no matter what pain or harm it might bring. He has shown himself worthy by choosing you out of this world. You too, believer in Jesus, you were once of this world, but in his sovereign, almighty grace. I wish we could go back and sing that song again. I, we've never done like a, a sermon and then sing songs in the middle. But like, oh, that we could go back and sing grace unmeasured vast and free, that knew me from eternity, that called me out before my birth to bring him glory on this earth. He chose you, believer, out of this world, and he set his love on you, and he plucked you out of this evil, deranged, darkened world, and he made you his very own. Though we too were guilty, as it says there in verse 25, of hating him without cause. Kids, did you ever say the phrase, that's not fair? I knew that there, it's like I almost said, I have a feeling I'm going to hear from a Tyrell child on this matter, but, but I didn't say it, and then you came through. Praise the Lord. I like responsiveness from the kids. That's good. Did you ever say, that's not fair? We talk like that sometimes because we think we, think we deserve something, and we think somebody else is not treating us the way we, there is anyone ever who really had a right and a reason to say that's not fair, it would be the Lord Jesus Christ. He says here that the word, the word from Scripture, that word from 69, uh, Psalm 69 that Steve read to us earlier, they hated me without cause, speaking of David's experience, but really actually truly fulfilled in Jesus. He says they have hated me without cause. Does that not, I mean, doesn't that statement really just summarize the history of humanity's treatment against God? And if you happen to be here among us this morning and you don't consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, maybe not a Christian, but you're thinking, I'm interested in checking these things out, we, we welcome you in Jesus here this morning, and you're not a Christian, is you have hated God without cause. Now, it's you, and I can say that confidently about you, even though I might not know you, because I know humans. And this is true of all of us humans. We have hated him without cause. What did he ever do to us? All he did for us was shower good upon us. He made us. He's given us life and breath and everything. He has lavished us with so many good gifts, but each for all his good. We have hated him without cause. We have rebelled against him. 
and rejected him and ignored him. And we have asserted our own right to rule our lives instead of him. In a word, it is pride. We have been proud towards our maker. We have been arrogant towards our maker. And we have all been guilty of it. And so if all the craziness of this past month, with all the pride being celebrated, if that kind of is irking, I know I prayed about this a couple times this month, but I'm going to say it explicitly now to you. If it's irking you just a little bit, it's like, what, what, like what's up? What's, I can't believe celebrating pride. Think, think about your own pride. I had to repent yesterday of forgetting my own pride before God. It's not, just us, it's not just the rainbow-waving crowd that is guilty of pride, but we are all guilty of pride. And God's word says in Proverbs 16, 5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Have you taken time in the past week, I wonder, to consider your arrogance in heart towards the Lord? And what an abomination it is to him. To you things that I have not first done. We have taken the life that he has given to us. And we have done with it what we wanted to do. We have gone our own way. We have disregarded his law. We have done our own thing. Even still as followers of Jesus. Because of that old self still warring against the spirit at work in us. We still have pride that needs to be repented of. Think about your sin. Think about what you're comfortable watching, what you're comfortable listening to, what you're comfortable participating in, the way that you talk about others, the self-righteousness that you walk in. Maybe you don't even realize it unless you step back and actually think about it for a little bit. And I'm asking you today to think about it a little bit. Think about it and think about what it warrants from God. A torment that never ends. The experience of longing for death but having it not come. The experience of fire and sulfur endlessly raining down on us. The smoke of our torment ascending to the heavens day and night with no rest. That's what all of us have earned, very richly earned for ourselves. That's what he plucked us out of. Right? That's what he chose us out of. And he didn't just choose it and say, ah, oh, let's do that. He came to earth and he gave his life to rescue us from it. Beloved, our resolve, our decision to follow Jesus with no turning back, that resolve arises from his own resolve to suffer hatred from this world and himself not turn back from it, though they hated him without cause. Though they hated him without cause, and he knew they would do it. It was what the scriptures, he says here in this passage, it's, and he came. He came from heaven, from heaven to earth, and he came to die. He came to give himself for us. John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus knew that that hour, the hour of his death was soon to come. He said, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He said, I mean, he doesn't say no, but essentially no, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. No turning back in the heart of our Lord Jesus. No turning back. 
Not when his friend, his beloved disciple, betrayed him. No turning back. Not when his, the rest of the disciples, when they abandoned him. Not when Peter denied him. Not when the guards arrested him. Not when they asked for a guilty criminal to be released instead of him. Not when the crowds, who just days earlier had been praising him, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, and those chants of praise turned into calls, crucify, crucify, no turning back. Not when they beat him and stripped him naked and divided his garments among them. Not when they mocked him or when they spit upon him and flogged him and pressed on him a, a crown of thorns, laughing in derision against him. Not when they pierced his hands and feet to that cross and hung him up there to suffer, to suffocate to death. Not even when his own beloved father in heaven forsook him because he was bearing in his body and soul the full weight and indignation of God against our transgressions. All of our sin, he became sin in our behalf. And he endured that. At no point did he turn back. At any point, you, you understand, right? You understand, he says it. At any point, he could have called down legions of angels to rescue him from that suffering and to vindicate his glory of Jesus. And why? Why no turning back? It, to save you from your arrogance from your pride, from your hating him without cause. He turned, he would not turn back. No turning back. And therefore, it is our desire because he has so dearly loved us. He's chosen us out of this world. He's made us his friend. He has loved us with an unconquerable love that we, and so we say, you are worthy of all the glory. Okay, we just one refrain, you are worthy of all the glory. Can we do that? Can you, will you help me? You're not going to make me look like a fool up here? For you are. Amen. Yeah, you sounded good. I, I, you sounded good. No turning back. Think on what he did for us. Consider him, the scriptures say. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted because you're going to be tempted to be faint-hearted. You're going to be tempted when you get hated by people, when some of your own family alienate you and ostracize you. It's going to be hard. You're going to be faint-hearted. You're going to start getting to question whether they should just go back, whether they should turn back and go to their old ways because they thought maybe he's not worth it. And what we have seen in the gospel is that he is worth it. We will be hated. We're not going to be hated all the time, everywhere, by everybody. The Bible says one of the qualifications for So we're not going to be hated by everyone, everywhere, all the time. But you will be hated. You can't avoid it. You shouldn't try to avoid it. Don't be a jerk. Okay? This is not a license to just be mean-spirited. 
Just because you're being opposed doesn't necessarily mean you're being faithful. It may just mean you're being foolish in the way that you're bearing witness. But understand, you can be as loving and gentle as you want when you call people to repent of their sin and follow Jesus. You're going to be opposed. Don't try to evade that. He told you it was going to happen. It, it, it will be probably happening more in our culture. That shouldn't surprise us. We have no lasting city here. That word was spoken in the first century, and it's true of every place on earth. Here, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We are strangers, and we are exiles here. And if we're being made to feel it a little bit more now, well, praise Jesus. Make us faithful with it. We should not be surprised that there is cultural disdain and marginalization. We should not be surprised when laws are enacted that oppose Christian conduct and morality and witness. They're unwilling to go along with certain corporate values. We shouldn't be surprised uh, when cultural eradicating people like us from existence. We're not kicked out of the synagogues the way Jesus says because we don't do synagogues. But we, we, they want to kick us out of the public square. They want to kick us out of society. We shouldn't be surprised by that. Shouldn't be surprised when churches lose their tax-exempt status and with it perhaps our ability to maintain property. I'm sure some of you, especially, maybe you're very excited about August 1st, getting back in that building. And it may be that for that time when we can't own a building and we just got to go find somewhere, some, some park or playground that we can meet in because we can't own the building anymore unless we, unless we sign to be the open and affirming church. Shouldn't be we come to others in Jesus' name, and their hatred of him runs deep. You know what the word of God says about the human race, right? Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. We're in a world whose cause is demonic, brothers and sisters. Their guide is the devil. Their passions are evil. Their minds are hostile to God. That's who we're among, and we come in the name of Jesus to confront them and to call them to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We will be hated, and he will help you. Are you concerned? Are you getting a breeze out there? <laughs> Not many amens. The second point is going to be briefer. We can, we can count on being hated, but we can also count on Jesus faithfully, on Jesus giving us all the help that we need to faithfully bear witness, to withstand the world's hatred, and faithfully bear witness to him. Look at verse 26. I will send to you from the Father the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness. Our confidence in Jesus' help, he is giving that help here in this passage by the helper, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And when we consider the bitter hatred that the church knew in the first century... And when we see the existence even of this gathering today, we can be confident that that help will prevail, right? What hatred they knew. How, how strong was the opposition to the church? How fierce was the desire to snuff out the church in those first days before it could really get off the ground? And yet here we are on the other side of the world 2,000 years later because the helper, the Holy Spirit, is that strong and sovereign and almighty, 
Not all the powers of hell nor all the schemes of man could hinder the building of Jesus' church. And nothing will hinder its advance until the time that he has chosen to return. You see there in verse 27 this promise of the helper. It was first and foremost a promise to the apostles and their witness, right? He says, you will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, that's not us, right? He's talking to the 11 there. They were with him from the beginning of his ministry. But I do think we can infer as we understand the rest of Scripture and we know why the Holy Spirit was given, we can infer that this promise of help in the person of the Holy Spirit in the midst of our witness to Jesus is applied to all of those whom Jesus has chosen out of this world who have come to believe in Jesus through the ministry of those first apostles. We know what Jesus said to his apostles right before his ascension to heaven when he promised them the Holy Spirit and said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as we are still living in this age and as the gospel still needs to go yet farther to the ends of the earth, I think we can infer that this promise of the Spirit's power for witness is still to us as we seek to continue extending the gospel to the ends of the earth. We have been given. I, pray, I prayed it earlier. You understand the stuff I don't have time to say, I just put that in the pastoral prayer. If you haven't figured that out, I just let you in on something. Now I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> He has given us the ministry of reconciliation, that we might call people, that we might be his ambassadors, calling people out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He has given us that ministry. What a reason to get out of bed in the morning. He has called us to bear his name. He's rescuing sinners from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. And he intends to use people like you. Not just me standing up here getting... He means for you to go into your neighborhoods and your homes and your workplaces and your kids' sports rec leagues and to tell them about this good news that there is peace and salvation in Christ. And there's great news if you feel weak, if you feel inadequate. The very same spirit that Jesus promised in Chapter 15, verse 26, the spirit of the risen Christ, the spirit who put hymns of joy in Paul and Silas's heart, the, 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 the same spirit who brought joy into the hearts of those apostles in Acts 5 because they were, they were rejoicing that they'd been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That same spirit lives in you who have come to Jesus. And that is meant to calm your fears. Because Jesus knows you're going to have some fears. Seven, God gave us a spirit. You know, a lot, of you, not a lot of you love and know this verse. You don't always think about it in terms of evangelism and missions. But that's what it's there for. It's not first about you, your fears that you may have cancer. He didn't give you a spirit of fear. You can apply it that way. You can apply it that way. It's okay. There's other verses that speak of not fearing. This is a promise about our witness. Paul writing to his young apprentice Timothy, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. We need those words of encouragement because telling others about Jesus and potentially provoking hatred and opposition from them, that feels a little scary. We don't like that. We don't like to look at our culture and feel like we're, like we're losing. 
We feel fear sometimes. We wonder what it's going to be like for our children or our grandchildren to live in this world if, if the change is years. We may be regarded as the scum of the earth and the refuse of all things. Again, that's not new. That was the experience of the apostles in the first century. But we can be confident as we walk through all manner of difficulties and trials. It is worth it because he is worth it. And we bear witness in the name of the one who is king of kings. The one with all authority in heaven and on earth. The one who says no one and no thing can ultimately harm you. Anything that you lose now in faithful service to Christ. He can and he will restore to you when he comes. We really have no final threat to our well-being brothers and sisters. None. None at all. The future for us is very, very bright in Jesus Christ. You want me to tell you how bright it is? I'll tell you briefly. And, it's, and the Spirit guarantees it. The Spirit, John 15, 26, the Spirit, the helper who comes. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. Is he bearing witness with your spirit even this morning that we are children of God? And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, brothers and sisters, children of God, those of you indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The saying is trustworthy, Paul wants you to know. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Oh, the future is very, very bright. We will not magnify Jesus by our alarmism. We will not make pointing. We will magnify him by being a people of poise and contentment and hope. Because our Christ is living and he will one day reign on the earth and all those who've pledged allegiance to him, they will reign with him. There is a cost in following Jesus. But he loves us. And he will keep us. The reward and the victory is well worth it. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you to him and ever. Amen. You did not say that loud enough. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Love you, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we pray that you would help us. We long to be faithful to you. Next month, our good resolve that we have to be faithful to you and to boldly declare your name, we will, we will waver. Would you keep us faithful? Freshly fill us with your spirit that we might be resolved. Remind us of the cost that Jesus paid. And help us to be faithful in the power of your spirit. No matter what may come. May you give us that resolve that we will not turn beat us home. 
may we go making much of your grace to all who will give us an ear to hear it. We ask for this all in Jesus' name. I know that that was a little bit of a long one and it's hot out, but you know, this, that's just a passage I think is particularly needed in our culture and I did not want to rush through it. So thank you for your patience. Uh, why don't we stand and we're going to close with a final hymn.